5: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me. And apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless Googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Persia. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash, Persia. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History of Persia. This is episode 29, The Grand Tour, part 4. Unofficially, The Grand Tour, part 4, oh god, finally, I've made it, it's about time. If you got to this episode because it was the most recent in the feed, and you're a little confused how we got from 27 to 29 in one episode, you're in the wrong place. I released two episodes today episode 28 and episode 29 to try and finish out the Grand Tour in one final go. Episode 28 covers Assyria and Babylonia, and ran for much longer than I ever expected Assyria to take, even knowing how complicated it was. So here we are in episode 29, and if you haven't done episode 28 yet, I recommend you go back and listen to part 3 of the Grand Tour before continuing on. Part 3 ended in Babylonia specifically Babylon itself, simultaneously the capital of the satrapy, the great satrapy, the Mesopotamian economy, and one of several royal capitals where the great kings held court for part of the year. In Babylon's case, they were there in most of the winter. This episode will take us through the three foremost provinces of the empire, each containing at least one of the five Achaemenid royal capitals. Still following the map from Ian Mladyov, I have posted on historyofpersiapodcast.com, we're headed east. Not long after we cross the Tigris, we pass out of Babylonia and into a region on the map labeled Susiana, corresponding roughly to modern Khuzistan. Of course, that's the Greek name, meaning the land of Susa, in a similar way that Babylonia is the land of Babylon. That lines up nicely with the old Persian name, Uja which is just the Persian way of saying Susa. However, local inscriptions in the local language called it by a different, very ancient name, Hatamtu, better known in the modern world as Elam. From the earliest recorded history, the Elamites ruled southwestern Iran with their dual capitals at Susa and Anshan. Occasionally their kingdom would be fractured, occasionally it was unified. Sometimes they were pushed around by the Mesopotamian powers, And sometimes, Elamites ruled in Babylon. There were points when Elam was a thorn in the side of the Assyrians, and points when Assyria left Elam desolated in retribution. It was that last situation that finally brought an end to over 2,000 years of Elamite dominance in the region. The last powerful Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, marched into Elam and sacked the capital city at Susa. That wasn't the end of the kingdom, but it was the beginning. It seems that political factions developed and foreign invasions from other directions tore away at their territory until only the region surrounding Susa remained clearly Elamite. The last Elamite to rule in Susa, who didn't even bother calling himself a king, was Tepet Humbam Shinak, who boasted of leading a military campaign into the Zagros Mountains against one of the Iranian tribes that swept down from the hills and invaded Elam. Of course, one of those tribes was the Persians, who carved out the region of Anshan as their own, and from there Cyrus the Great rose up and conquered in every direction to create his empire. In all of the stories of Cyrus's conquests, Susa is never mentioned. Immediately adjacent to the Grand Jewel of Babylon, the inherited imperial center in Media, and the Persian homeland itself, Susa goes wholly ignored. It must have been conquered. It would be insane to think that it existed as an independent kingdom in the heart of Achaemenid territory. Perhaps either the Medes or the Persians ruled it before Cyrus took power. Perhaps it submitted as the Persian conquerors enveloped them. Perhaps this was one of Cyrus' eastern campaigns lost to history. We just have no idea. For the first 50 years or so of Persian power until Darius was firmly on his throne. Susa and the former heartland of Elam remained a backwater, apparently a once-powerful kingdom reduced to farmland and a thoroughfare between the Persian capital and Mesopotamia. Or at least, that's the picture we have from the non-existent evidence. And yet, the Elamite influence is undeniable. Elamite text is one of the three scripts used on the Behistun inscription and almost every other royal inscription from there on. Elamite cuneiform was the primary language used by the scribes and administrators in the Persian heartland for most of the early empire, all of Persian history at this point in our narrative. Elamite artistic styles also permeated early Achaemenid designs, second only to Assyrian influence. Some of this can be excused by the Persian occupation of Anshan. They had, after all, launched their empire as the Iranian rulers of traditionally Elamite land, probably ruling over a traditionally Elamite population. But the future of Susa itself forces me to wonder if the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, and Susa had some real cultural prominence under the early Persians. Despite its apparent insignificance under Cyrus and his sons, Susiana, mostly due to the city of Susa itself, surged in prominence under and after Darius. Darius launched a massive building project in the city. Elamite temples were restored and began to receive royal funding. Administrative buildings were restored, and Persian monuments were built. But most importantly, Darius built a palace there. In and of itself, this was hardly remarkable. As I mentioned in Part 3, he was also constructing one in Babylon, and even as he was putting the finishing touches on Cyrus's palace at Pisargadai, he was constructing a whole new capital city at Parsa. Despite that, Darius's palace in Susa is one of the best preserved Achaemenid structures, with some of the most beautiful and well preserved surviving Achaemenid art. And to assuage any concerns that reveling in Susa is some kind of modern bias, it was the most famous Achaemenid capital in its own time. Greek sources, the Hebrew Bible, Egyptians, and even Arachosians all recognized Susa as the place to be and often referenced it as if it were the only Persian capital, surpassing all three of the other Iranian capital cities in fame, and matched only by Babylon in terms of notoriety. As a result, Susiana was part of the great satrapy ruled from Parsa itself, almost an extension of the home province, but it did actually have its own satrap who had his own palace in Susa. Persian embassies and embassies to the Persians usually traveled to and from Susa rather than the other palace cities where the kings held court. Despite this, there are very few administrative documents left in Susa now, while thousands of tablets survive from Persepolis. That may lead some to think we're being taken in by the near-legendary status of the city, but there's probably another explanation. Unlike Persepolis, Susa has survived as an inhabited city right up to the present. It lost much of its importance over time, but was continually inhabited, unlike Persepolis, which was abandoned after the fall of the Achaemenids. The Elamites themselves occupy an interesting place in the Achaemenid hierarchy, too. In terms of wealth and political importance, their heartland was clearly in the same category as Parsa and Media and it is probably Elamites depicted as immortals on the walls at Darius's palace in Susa. So their people were elevated to a similar status to the Persians and Medes themselves. There must have been Elamite nobles and maybe even Elamite generals in the Persian ranks. Darius restored their religious institutions, but he did the same in Babylon and Judea, so that's not particularly remarkable. And yet, later Achaemenid kings as soon after Darius as his own son Xerxes, placed the same Zoroastrian, or at least Iranian, religious obligations on the Elamites as they did on the Persians, Medes, and Parthians. So the people of Elam were rapidly becoming part of the Persian Empire and becoming part of Persia themselves. That's also reflected in their language, which borrowed many words from Persian, without nearly as much exchange going the other way that we can tell. Unfortunately, Since Susiana is so poorly documented compared to some of its neighbors, it's hard to know just what this cultural shift looked like. And yet there were ways in which Elam remained Elamite, and clung to its ancient heritage. This was most evident in the mountains of northeastern Susiana, known in later Greek sources as Elamais. Elamais, from the same root as Elam, was actually a functionally autonomous kingdom right in the heart of the Achaemenid Empire. The mountains were inaccessible and sparsely populated by a people known as the Uxians, who were ruled by a local leader, the Roman author Quintus Curtius, called a prefect, probably some kind of local prince or chieftain who cooperated with the satrap of Susiana militarily, but paid no tribute and negotiated the terms of their own alliance with the greater empire. For the next few centuries, Elemaeus will remain an independent mountain kingdom, But in the future, they will expand and become an important component of the Parthian Empire, ruling over most of Susiana at their height. But for now, continuing the tour out of Susiana, we move north, passing through Elemaeus and into Media, called Mata in Old Persian. Now, to keep our tour on track, I'm going to skip up to the northern part, even though the border with Elemaeus and Susiana was in Central Media. In the north... Media bordered on Parthia in the Caspian Sea to the east, and Armenia in the west, stretching north into the Caucasus Mountains, encompassing parts of modern Armenia and most of Azerbaijan. This is the region called Media Minor in some of our Greek and Roman sources, and it probably maintained something similar to the pre-imperial, pre-kingdom Medes and Iranian Mountain Tribes culture. It would have been less populous than neighboring regions, and less settled. The primary tribe in the region were the Caducioi who were not significant enough to appear in any Achaemenid administrative documents, and are known from mostly contemporary Greek sources instead. According to Theseus, they managed to stay independent from the Median Empire under Syaxeres and Astyages, but were conquered by Cyrus, according to Xenophon. It seems that even after their conquest, the Caduceoi repeatedly resisted Persian rule and would refuse to send tribute or fight rebellions against the Achaemenid regime once every few decades. This is in stark contrast to Greater Media, the primary region associated with Media and the core of the original Median kingdom. Media was a core part of the Persian Empire and arguably the reason it could even exist. After all, it was only by rebelling against his overlord Astyages and seizing control of Media that Cyrus the Great gained the means to conquer the world. He went from the King of Anshan, the declining highlands of Old Elam, to King of Media and King of Persia, Using an empire that stretched from central Anatolia through most of modern Iran, he was able to become the great king over most of southwest Asia. When Cyrus took over, he maintained the Median royal capital in Ecbatana, which I've seen described as undoubtedly the third city of the empire, even if the first and second places are disputed by three other cities. The Medes were afforded a special place in Persian society. As an ethnic or cultural group, they were the only ones allowed to serve in high offices alongside the Persians. In this early period of the empire, only Medes and Persians could be elevated to the ranks of general, Bandara Patish commanding 10,000 or more men, and satraps ruling over a province in the king's name. It seems the only offices the Medes were truly shut out from were the great kingship itself and the mother of the crown prince, both of whom had to be Persian. Despite all of that, we know shockingly little about media. Most of the country was dominated by the Zagros Mountains, making settlement difficult, the population dispersed, and urban settings rare. In similar settings, like most of the eastern provinces, we can lean more heavily on the capital city for archaeological documentation. But Ekbatana is another one of those cities that has remained too important for too long to have any good documentation from 2,500 years ago. It would remain the regional capital for centuries after the Achaemenids were all gone, and has remained inhabited right up through today. Its name hasn't even changed, particularly. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the
3: middle of the U.S., I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program, after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for
2: 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. Ekbadana is almost entirely lost beneath modern Hamadan. And even if it weren't it seems that most of the Achaemenid structures and sculptures were cleared away or looted for building materials long ago. Most of the plausible Achaemenid locations that archaeologists have access to are now occupied by Parthian ruins from 600 years down the line in our narrative. They probably had to clear out the older Achaemenid structures to keep a functioning capital. As recently as the 19th century CE, when the first European academics started investigating Hamadan for signs of ancient history, they referenced a caymanid style architecture, mostly fragments of columns and plinths, built into newer buildings. But so far as anyone can tell, that has all been lost in the last 200 years. We can't even rely on outside sources for our information. Greek and Jewish sources, both contemporary and well into the Roman period, are full of fantastical accounts of Ecbatana. The Summer Palace was labeled one of the Seven Wonders of the World by Hellenistic writers, and its legend just continued to spread. Foreign sources either describe the city and its palace as impossibly huge, gilded, and grand, or they fail to mention media at all. And when we get to Arian's account of Alexander and the Macedonian conquest, which usually sheds so much light on other cities in the Eastern Empire, All we really learn is that the Greeks stripped the palace in Ecbatana for its wealth and building materials. At least that explains why some of it is lost to modern archaeology. We can hardly rely on Persian or Mesopotamian sources either. While Ecbatana is mentioned occasionally, it's rarely with any detail about its upkeep, administration, or business. That's probably because Ecbatana had its own royal archive and treasury and was the seat of the Median satrap as well as a royal capital all of the information about Media and Ecbatana that we might have used to reconstruct the Achaemenid city was probably contained and lost within the city itself. In that regard, it's very similar to Damascus in the previous episode, which faces many of the same problems when talking about the Achaemenid period. Thus, any information about how Media was socially or culturally different from Persia is vague and extrapolated from passing references or exaggerations. Median society might have been structured around something like the tribes of ancient Athens or Rome, which were less about actual relationships and more about political organization within the kingdom. Herodotus mentions a few of those tribes, but with no details. Based on the description of the Magi as a Median tribe, it may be that these divisions were actually social classes rather than political divides. In that scenario, the Magi were the religious class, another would have been the political or military class, another for peasants, but any guessing beyond that becomes very, very vague. Art and architecture is even harder to discern. Some scholars even deny that there was a separate Median style distinct from the Persians, basically suggesting that both leaned heavily on the Assyrians and it only fully developed under the Achaemenids. Sometimes you'll hear about artifacts or art styles referred to as Median, but more often than not, this is just a label applied to anything found in the right region from the early Iron Age there's almost never any actual association with the Medes themselves. Sadly, the only thing we're able to describe with any certainty at all is the components of the Median economy, and even then, only because the Medes were once depicted bringing tribute to the Assyrians or Arartians in foreign reliefs, and because the economy of a mountainous region in Iran in the 6th century is fairly predictable. The few cities that existed were hubs of handicrafts, incorporating bronze, gold, and silver and precious stones or fabric goods, usually from linen or wool. In the valleys and lowlands, there were sedentary farmers and cattle herders. In the more mountainous regions, herdsmen took their cattle and sheep from place to place, and wherever there was sufficient room, they would raise horses and camels. Naturally, Ecbatana acted as a hub of all of this trade in the region and the terminus of several major trade routes, which allowed its wealth to grow into legend. The southern tip of Media, directly on the border with Parsa, is separated as its own subunit by Ladiov. That's probably overstating reality a bit. This is the region of Paritakene, apparently named for the tribe that lived there. It wasn't so much an administrative unit separate from greater media, but a mountainous hinterland where the authorities didn't exert much control. Much like Elimaeus and Susiana, the Paritakene were mostly left to their own devices, and occasionally clashed with the Persian government, but more often than not, it was just an unsafe region of inhospitable mountains that travelers might have wanted to circumvent anyway. Mladioff probably assigns a bit too much territory to the Paritakene. As this was the border region between two great central provinces in the empire, there would have had to be a stable corridor without too much tribal interference. That corridor was probably along the Zyondorund River and passed through the only city in the region. Known in antiquity as Gabai. It is now Isfahan Iran. Finally, our tour moves south once again, and we entered our final and most important province. We did it, everyone. Welcome to Parsa. Of course, technically, this is also the province we started in. All the way back in episode 26, part 1 of the Grand Tour, I started us off in Karmana, the region east of Parsa itself, which was usually governed directly by the Persians. I also have to offer a quick correction from that part of the tour. I said the capital of Karmana was now Kermanshah, Iran. That is what the article I was reading said, but as one of you pointed out, when you actually look at the geography, it doesn't make much sense. Upon further reading, they almost definitely meant Kerman, Iran, which is very far southeast of Kermanshah and is labeled as Karmana on Ian Mladiov's map. Sorry for any confusion that might have caused, I should have double checked that. So back to Parsa itself. This is one of the few provinces, heck, one of the few places in the whole empire, that I am consistently calling by its Persian name. If you're following on the map, you'll see it labeled as Persis, which is naturally the Greek name for the region. However, the Greek name is also the conventional name for a later independent kingdom within the Parthian Empire that will become very important much later. To draw a distinction, I'm using the old Persian name for Parsa itself truly more so than anywhere else in the empire parsa presents a conundrum paradoxically the persian homeland is the most important place in the empire one of the richest in documentation and achaemenid archaeology and simultaneously one of the most poorly understood province if it's even appropriate to call it that i question whether it's appropriate to call parsa a province because it was not structured like one it's not surprising that the homeland would have special privileges but it does make it hard to describe. Parsa itself paid no taxes or tribute, because, in theory, it was the recipient of all other payments. The Persian people were elevated above everyone else in terms of legal privileges and social standing. In practice, that probably meant next to nothing for poor farmers and herdsmen, but for the nobility, it gave them an edge in politics and preference in court. And yet, we still have a few references to the governor of Persia. This seems to have been an appointed Persian official, similar in concept to a satrap who handled the day-to-day governing of Parsa on behalf of the king. However, this governor would never have the political autonomy or leeway in his own affairs that a satrap enjoyed, because it was still the great king's province in a way that foreign conquests never were. In spite of everything, for all the ways we might want Parsa itself to be unique, impressive, and globally important under the Achaemenids, it just wasn't. Overall, it's exactly what we've come to expect from the region, relatively dry but not desolate. The landscape around bodies of water, be it lakes, rivers, or the sea, becomes lower, flatter, and more suitable to settled agriculture. In the highlands and regions between farms, herds of animals were shepherded from one field to the next, be they cattle, goats, sheep, or horses. The most unique thing to note about the economy is that the horses were more prominent than some other provinces but this is hardly the first province where horses have featured in my description. Payment almost universally seems to have been paid in kine rather than coinage. Laborers were paid in rations. Gifts to honor the king were given in rations. Boons from the king to the nobility were given in rations. Grain, animals, beer, and wine were the currency of the land. Based on archival tablets from Persepolis, there seem to have been understood values for each commodity, So it wasn't a barter economy necessarily, but it wasn't based around money. I haven't actually talked about it much, but this would have been the case for most of the empire by 500 BCE. Only Lydia and the surrounding area really used coinage for day-to-day exchanges. It would be another century or more before the western provinces finally started adopting coinage en masse. And it wouldn't be until the Greeks and Macedonians took over in the east that they earnestly started minting coins. In many of the provinces on our tour, I've tried to cover some of the culture in the region. For the most part, that's the high culture practiced by the wealthy and noble. Sadly, for those of us interested in the culture of everyday people, it was really only the rich who could afford to set down their culture in a way that would last for 2,500 years. I could do that for Persia, but the high culture of Persia was the culture of the Persians, i.e. the ruling class of the empire, it's the culture that I look at every time I talk about Persian imperial culture for a whole episode, so there's plenty of that in the podcast already, and there will be even more in the future. So that just leaves the cities, which is usually where the real meat is. Somewhat surprisingly, at least on a very surface level, Parsa was not brimming with urban settlement in the same way as Mesopotamia or the Mediterranean coast. It may have been home to the ruling dynasty, but the resources just weren't there to support those kinds of population centers. Some more minor cities by the time of Darius would have included Shiraz, which is now the modern capital of the Iranian province of Fars, and Anshan, which was the ancient Elamite capital of Cyrus the Great. Until the time of Darius, Anshan probably remained a political and military hub of Persian rule in the region, even though it almost completely vanishes from surviving histories after Cyrus set out on his conquests. Under Cyrus, a new quote-unquote capital city known as Pasargadai was constructed, centered on a new palace for Persia's first king of kings. For some more detailed information on the construction of Pasargadai under Cyrus the Great, you can look back to episode 11, King of Kings. But the thing is, Pasargadai wasn't really a city. In fact, the other major cities of the region, like Shiraz, might have been founded to support it. Instead, Pasargadai should be thought of more of a ceremonial palace in an artificial oasis built from a series of Mesopotamian-style gardens or parks called paradises. It was only a place for Cyrus to hold court, start a royal necropolis, and have Cambyses coronated, or form a physical impression of Persian power and grandeur. It was not a bustling population center with businesses, markets, merchants, government offices, or foreign embassies. Under the Tayspid kings, those sorts of things were generally handled in Ecbatana or Babylon, but Darius saw the need to have a true capital in Parsa itself. Thus he co-opted a city known as Parsa. Parsa City might have been founded as a prototype replacement for Anshan. There are some vague references to it that might suggest that it was a government complex before Darius came around, but Darius made it into something famous. The city of Parsa is better known by its name in Greek. Persepolis, a literal translation of the Persian city. If there was an official settlement on the site before Darius sent his builders there, it is completely lost to us. Darius had the whole city constructed from the ground up to serve as a new royal capital. A proper city this time. Still in the heart of Parsa, it could be used to serve the same roles as Babylon, Susa, or Ecbatana. It had archives, a treasury, and a massive workforce. It also served as the hub of activity for the home province. Nobles granted land in Parsa and Mesopotamia received rations and payments organized and dictated at Persepolis, as did the workforce for many royal complexes, palaces, and fortifications in the central provinces. The same was true for the priests and officials that maintained the ceremonial capital at Pisargadai, which lost its place as a political hub if it ever even had one. But the city of Cyrus became the religious and ceremonial center of the Persian Empire. Persepolis is, still in the form of its ruins, the clear image and example of Achaemenid imperial art, architecture, and design. Because there is no modern city, archaeologists have been able to completely pick through and analyze the whole city in a way that can't be done with most of the other Achaemenid capitals. Persepolis is actually such a momentous topic that we're going to give it its whole own episode. And that will be episode 30 in two weeks. In the next episode, we will go into detail about the city of Persepolis and the palace at Susa, both constructed for Darius the Great. Until then, if you want more information about the podcast or me, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you can find more information about the podcast and a Caimanid family tree down to the children of Darius. I selected bibliography and podcast recommendations, as well as the support page for the show if you want to try and support us financially. The best way to support the show is through Patreon, which is patreon.com historyofpersia, where you can get all sorts of benefits like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. But it doesn't have to be financial. The absolute best way you can help this show grow is by sharing with your friends on social media, or even just telling them in real life. On social media, you can find me as at historyofpersia on Twitter, and History of Persia podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I also encourage everyone to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, or other podcast reviewing sites. All the reviews are incredibly wonderful and always appreciated. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The History of Persia.